This is History Lab. I'm Tamsin Peach. Today, a history of love, law and heartbreak. Dear Sarah, my affections for you have not been sudden or precipitant. I have fostered them for some time within my breast, although my dear Payne, you have not been acquainted with You shall have nothing to complain of in my conduct, and if possible, will love you the my more dear Sarah, for breaking down. Write me that effect, and it will be one of the happiest moments my of my dear, life. Come and see her who loves you more than all the world, your own Sarah Cox. Quietly buried away in Western Sydney's state archives is a secret history of love. It will make us confront how we've come to know and police what we do with our feelings. My dear, I don't know whether you received my letter yesterday. If you will see me, answer. If not, I will never trouble you more. In 1822, Captain Payne, a sea merchant fell in love with a poor 16-year-old seamstress, Sarah Cox, who was working near the docks in Sydney Cove. But as the story so often goes, Payne moved on to a wealthier woman, and Sarah was left out in the cold. Sir, I will thank you to send my letters and everything else you have belonging to me by the bearer, and not give me the trouble of sending any more to an ungrateful wretch as you are. In the 19th century, a broken engagement could damn a woman for life. But in those days, scorned women had an unexpected way to get square. Today, an investigation into a law that was on the books until the 1970s. It was called Breach of Promise of Marriage. More than 1,000 plaintiffs, almost all women, went to court after being jilted by their lovers before getting to the altar. They were suing for the broken contract of an engagement and were often awarded massive damages. So in what weird world can you get the state to step in when someone just ghosts you? I've had up to £25,000. No, it would pay for a two-storey house in Double Bay on the water. Shit, that was big money. How do you sift the mess of a broken heart from the court records? So we do say to people, don't wear your best clothes, um, don't wear white. And what can this law tell us about the history of love? They say that when a woman falls, she falls forever. Legal historian Alicia Simmons and 2SER producer Tom Allenson have been digging up this history of love by going through these old writs. I mean, for nerdburgers like you and I, Alicia, <laughs> the archives probably seem a pretty great place to find love, but I imagine that to many it would seem pretty strange. Yeah. One of them I opened up and all of these love letters fell out and I thought, my God, this is this incredible kind of museum of love in a way. This is this secret history of love within this archive of law. What are these love letters doing here? And to be honest, I felt quite affected at the time. It just felt awful, really. There was such a collision between these intimate howlings of a broken heart stapled or falling out of a writ. You know, it just didn't make any sense to me. And to be honest, this breach of promise law sounds even stranger. So how did you make sense of it? Yeah, I mean, look, you've got to place it in the context of the time. But another part is saying, okay, so what do we mean by love? Oh, okay. So this is a really difficult question. So that's my friend Shuming Tio. I'd call her an historian of love. Yeah, yeah, cultural historian, I guess, who specialises in love, love literature. We're at a stage in the present day where we understand love to be about feelings. 
couple of centuries back, love was about feelings, but it's also about actions. If you understand love to be an action and not just a feeling, then you can do the actions and still call that love, right? Um, even though you don't have the feelings anymore. Yeah, I think that it was actually a profoundly public performance of duty, honour and promise-keeping in the 19th century. But why was there such an emphasis on duty and keeping your promises back then? Look, it's hard to tease out, but you can start by looking at what was at stake in love. If a woman gets stitched today, as they do all the time, they go to find someone else. Clive Evitt's one of the last lawyers to have practised breach of promise before it was abolished in 1976. But in the 19th century, that was harder for women. If they're engaged and the wedding falls through, they may never marry. Why is that? Social stigma. She was engaged to so-and-so, he wouldn't marry her. That couldn't happen today. Just couldn't happen. No-one would know what you're talking about. The stakes were really high for women. It's about their physical security. It's about their economic security. Um, and it's whether they're going to have, um, you know, a happy or an unhappy life. So when Captain Payne just dumped Sarah Cox, she probably saw her prospects just disappear down the plug hole. You'd think so. But by taking him to court in the first breach of promise case before a jury in Australia, she wasn't just taking fate into her own hands. She was one of the very first to use the law, you know, to define love in the colonies. And I needed to go through her case file to find out exactly how. So we'll just grab some gloves. Okay, this book is called The Judgment Book, so it's 200 years old. And so this would be the original leather binding. We're in the archives with Emily Hanna, an archivist. She's got rubber gloves on and orange dust from the old court records is getting everywhere. That's what happens to leather. It turns into an orange dusty thing. So we do say to people, don't wear your best clothes. Um, Don't wear white. Um, So what I've got here was a box of judgment rolls and this would be all the paperwork. There might be subpoenas for people to appear before the court. You get the interrogatories, you get the bills of cost. So there'd be the depositions from the various witnesses. You can get lockets of hair, you can get train tickets, you can get lists of the items of a woman's trousseau. That's a box of all the things a woman collects in the hope of getting married, like linen and lingerie and a wedding dress. But in something like this, which is a breach of promise case, I suppose the letters would be a way that one party's demonstrated their promise and the other can use that then as evidence. Okay, so just seeing the signature. This one is John Payne's signature. His writing's actually not too bad. It's quite clear. I think he's trying to impress her. Maybe. Should I read it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that'd be nice. I beg leave to acquaint you. It is my intention to sail on Tuesday Tuesday next, if possible. possible. Therefore, I think it is my duty to inform you that my affections for you are founded on the most pure and... This was Sarah's proof that Payne had proposed to her. ...to make you a companion of my future life. And believe, dear Sarah, that I shall always have you at heart. I remain, dear girl, girl, yours yours most affectionately, affectionately, John John Payne. Wow. But there's more to this story. 
we found another love letter to Sarah. See that signed by, because to me that doesn't look like pain, that signature. And it's from another man. Sarah, could your eyes but see the wounds your killing beauties give? A lover you might read in me, who, if you frown, disdains to live. Yours most sincerely attached, David Souter. Ah, so Sarah had another suitor. What a colonial love triangle. But hang on, was his name really Souter? Yes. Payne's lawyer did have fun with the spelling. The case note says, It appears that Captain Payne was the only Payne that could give her pleasure. Yet he was not the only suitor that would suit her. Uh, Hilarious. (laughs) And look, this was very valuable evidence for Payne. I found in the archival documents that he'd even paid off Sarah Cox's drunken servant with a new set of clothes and a bottle of rum to pinch Suter's letters from Sarah's house. So so Payne was really relying on this other man's love letter for his breach of promise defence, you know, to prove the engagement contract was void. Yeah, I mean, one implication was that Sarah was unchaste, uh, but the main defence was that it proved that she'd released him from his promise and that she'd suffered no injury. But the court didn't agree. Sarah argued that she'd rejected Suter. Okay, so in that case, if the promise still stood, how did the prosecution prove that Payne had broken his promise of marriage to Sarah? Look, by the time they went to court, Payne was already married to a richer, older widow, so he'd clearly traded up. But the court records show that Sarah had a very powerful friend in William Charles Wentworth, her barrister, and a pretty influential figure in establishing self-government for the colonies. So interestingly, he didn't tell the jury to worry about Sarah's feelings, but instead instructed them in his final speech to think about how they would feel if they were fathers and if this had happened to their daughter. So this is interesting to me because it shows how much love was a group emotion rather than just an individual passion that it is today. And it was a strong argument. I mean, Sarah Cox won. They slapped pain with a ruling of £100 in damages. And that was big money, right? Yeah. I mean, today it would calculate it around $180,000. Wow, that's a huge penalty. It makes the state seem pretty obsessed with marriage, though. Yeah, probably partly for the same reasons we are today. I mean, there's a conservatism to marriage, the idea that it makes people more settled, more industrious, more child-focused. But there's also reasons very peculiar to their time. Governor Macquarie arrived in 1810, stepped onto Botany Bay and declared that everyone must marry. His Excellency the Governor has seen with great regret the immorality and vice so prevalent among the lower classes of this colony and feels himself called upon to reprobate the scandalous and promiscuous custom so shamelessly adopted throughout this colony of persons of different sexes living together unsanctioned by the legal ties of matrimony. This was the period where the middle class rose to political and economic supremacy and they did that through basing their claims to the governance of the public sphere on private morality. So marriage became, uh, it was a way for them to assert their dominance by claiming a superior morality to the, you know, ruling classes and the unruly working classes. It's also a time when some of the colonies are trying to achieve self-government in Australia. 
And they're doing this based on a claim to to respectability. So they're needing to shake off their morally dubious origins, you know, their convict roots. And, of course, an abandoned woman was very expensive. You know, she couldn't support herself through work, so she was reliant on either the family or the community. Ah, so the courts were shifting the financial responsibility for these women from the community to these individual bounders and scoundrels. Absolutely. I mean, you know, what they're actually doing in some respects is that they're turning private tragedies into very public cautionary tales. So Sarah, I mean, she was feisty, but she was pretty lucky too. I mean, she came away £100 richer. What, What kind of life could she have expected with that kind of money? For any other woman of her class, her prospects would have been slim. But Sarah had been keeping a secret. It could have actually undermined her entire case. What? I know, okay. Well, because as the trial went ahead, Sarah and her barrister friend Wentworth were already expecting a child. No way. This is William Wentworth. He's the drafter of the Constitution and founder of Sydney University and, you know, an upstanding member of colonial society, yeah, you'd think. I know. <laughs> Wouldn't that prove Captain Payne right when he argued that Sarah was unchaste? Well, precisely. I mean, that was my question because uh, it seemed to me like one of the big contradictions of the suit. I mean, even Payne's defence barrister makes a series of sly remarks about Sarah looking pale and ill. Uh, I mean, he's really good friends with Wentworth, so he knows that Sarah's pregnant. Um, but as I read more cases, I just kept on coming across more and more women who were rocking up to court with a child on their hip. And the crazy part about it is that they win. So this didn't mean that illegitimacy was socially acceptable. It clearly wasn't. It just means that the courts were offering compensation for a lifetime of shame. And you can still find remnants of it today. So if you go to Sarah's house in Vaucluse, one of Sydney's wealthier suburbs, you'll see that she moved up in the world. But the house itself carries some of her shame. Because the house is open to the public today. Yeah. So, um, it's even nice to get some there. But I guess... This right here. This yeah, yeah. Empty so corridors. this empty corridor is where you would have entered the house. We're standing in Sarah's home with Mel Flight, the curator of Vaucluse House. It's now a museum. You know, we're not always dealing with the primary sources. We tend yeah. to kind of try and interpret her through the house and her effects. But Sarah's house is missing something crucial a front door. Where there should have been a grand entrance, there was a hallway leading to a wall. And you can imagine entering through here, you would have been presented with a a vast hallway, two storeys high, gothic arch, very grand staircase at the end, but it didn't go ahead. I think that this lack of a front door tells us something important about Sarah's status. I think given her position in society, it wasn't really acceptable for perhaps many of Wentworth's business or political associates to make the journey out here to Vaucluse House because of Sarah's reputation. It's extremely isolated. It's about two and a half hours by horse and carriage. And then everyone in society was aware of of Sarah and the children born out of wedlock. So even after winning her breach of promise case, Sarah never recovered her reputation? Sarah was seen as a fallen woman and in in a sense there was no redemption for a fallen woman. They say that when a woman falls, she falls forever.
So Sarah won legally, but she was punished socially. It makes me think that unmarried mothers were a big problem for the state. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Australia, there are no poor laws to provide, you know, for abandoned women and their children. So women with children were actually using the action as a form of maintenance, kind of like we have today. If you're in a situation where if, if you are financially independent or you're in a society where there is a welfare state and the government will take care of your kids for you out of wedlock, to use an old-fashioned term, right? Um, the need for marriage is not really that, I guess, pressing anymore. And with the huge changes that you see at the end of the 19th century, we get to a place where women were far less dependent on men for marriage and child maintenance. The militant suffragists who form the women's social and political unions are engaged in the attempt to win the parliamentary vote. Now, can you remember the day that you first voted? Oh, yes. We were rather excited uh, at the idea of, uh, that we had the franchise. So women started to work en masse especially, obviously, as the men went off to World War I, there's an expansion of women's public freedoms, public rights. I mean, suddenly they're in the public sphere. What did that mean for breach of promise? Look, I first started to notice these changes uh, when I came upon a woman just a little bit before First World War um, who claimed £10,000 for every dinner that she cooked a partner uh, whom you know, she had been courting, uh, and then he jilted her. What kind of meals? I I mean, I know it's not really relevant, but we've got 10,000 of them. (laughs) Uh, Look, I reckon it probably would have been stodge, uh, but compensable stodge. So she said it was over, I don't know, I think an 18 or 19-year engagement. But they were living together all that time. Yeah. And I just love the fact that she'd actually gone, well, you know, that actually wasn't a labour of love. You know, the love didn't end up happening. It's just pure labour. So I want my money back. So it sounds like these breach of promise cases allowed women to start to redefine love and marriage. I mean... They'd started to understand the economic value of their labour in relationships. Is that right? Yeah, and it's it's pretty extraordinary because it's long before second wave feminists, particularly in the 1970s, did so. There's a lot of women who answer ads in the paper where the men will put in an ad in saying that they want um, a housekeeper but with a view to marriage. That's a really common advertisement. And so the women will go along thinking that, you know, that they're going to, to be married and then they'll be jilted and so they start to claim back that housework. This all happens in the early 20th century, which is the exact same moment when courtship itself also becomes commodified. Why must I only dream of you, of you? Dating culture starts to emerge when love moves from the front porch to the back seat. What does that mean? Look, I mean, when courtship, whose only goal previously was to find the right person to marry, starts to morph more into dating. And surprisingly, as Xu Ming told me, that was tightly bound up with economics. Because courtship is not a lot about um, consumption. 
right? Um, whereas when you uh, when you have dating, and that arises in the early twentieth century, dating takes place in the public sphere, but it's not under the supervision. Of family courtship is much more in the open. The eyes of people are on you. Dating takes place um, in bars, restaurants, cinemas, cars. You know, um, these are private spaces in public, and it's uh, and they're very much fashioned around consumption as well. As industry became better at producing things, it needed us to consume more. Don't risk offending. Take a daily bath with Life Boy. So you buy shampoo, you know, you buy aftershave to make yourself smell nicer. Doctors prove that palm olive beauty care can bring you a lovelier complexion in 14 days. You buy stuff to ready yourself for the date. Fewer tiny blemishes, less oiliness. Blue Clinic shampoo leaves hair beautifully healthy. Oiliness. Brilliantly clean. Added softness. Too clean for dandruff. And then the date itself involves consumption because you're going somewhere, you're paying money to have a good time, and all of that. And consumption, of course, is about、um, is about pleasure as well, about hedonism. If at this point a woman could pick themselves up and brush themselves off after being jilted, and you know, go and date someone else, is this the moment when breach of promise becomes? Redundant, precisely. You know, and historians in America and England and Canada have all argued that by this stage the action's fallen completely out of step with modern intimacy because by now love, they say, was based more on affection than duty. But the strange thing with my cases is that this is precisely the moment when the action springs to life. So there's a bit more than 200 cases in the 19th century, but over 500 in just the first 30 years of the 20th century. So how how do you make sense of that? Well, you have to get right down into the case files. One of those files in particular held a few more surprises than I'd expected. Yeah, hey, it's Darren, and I'm the proprietor of the Captain Corvette. We've been here since 2012. The pub's been here for a lot longer than that. So we're down at the Sydney pub where a hundred years ago Beatrice Story met Frederick Chapman. Because in those days, you know, it was females didn't really go to the pub, or it was a ladies' lounge on one side and men on the other. And Beatrice, um, who we're going to find out later, had a very famous grandson. Don't make me wait. Tell、oh, me. Oh no, you're going to have to wait.、Um, all I'll tell you for the moment is that. Uh, around a hundred years ago, she worked here as a barmaid. What would have a lady been doing working in a hotel in 1913? So, you know, you Beatrice's imagine- story would have absolutely been one of these tough, sassy. Worldly kind of women who'd sort of seen it all in a bar like that. You know, it's a really rough kind of place. It's filled with artful dodgers, with people who are gamblers. People who who tell a great yarn, a cracking yarn. So if she's a barmaid, she's used to hearing a tall story. Yeah, but she didn't know that she would wind up on the end of one that would land her in court. And from what I've gathered from the archival materials, as well as the newspaper reports, mostly from the gossip rags at the time, I kind of built up this picture of her. So here she is. You know, she's thirty years old. She's working at the bar, and in swaggers Frederick. It reeks of smoke. Everyone's drunk, and you've got the 5 p.m. swill. He tells her a bunch of stories. Had a big win the track. He's loaded with money, or so he says. He's a widower. Says he's been married before, but he says that he's good to his word. And they are on. After a month of giddy infatuation, he gives her a ring. 
a promise. A few months later, the day before the wedding, he tells her not to be late to church. Nothing that he's told her is true. So the day of the wedding, he calls to say that his ex-wife is actually alive. She is furious. He comes crawling back. The story about his ex-wife, he explained, was actually just another yarn. Um, In fact, he confesses, well, look, I just got cold feet. So he wants Beatrice back now. But after having quit her job, organised furniture for the new house, paid for the wedding, she is unemployed, humiliated and all the poorer for it. She won't have it but she will take him to court. Well, yeah, it sounds like she's got a good case, but what was her proof? Well, yeah, I mean, she did. She had a clear broken promise, and you see that in the the love letters. Uh, You also see that in all the material goods that he gives her. The wedding ring, for instance, becomes proof of that. The furniture, these kind of financial investments are converted into legal evidence. So she wants a return on that. And then on top of that, she claims for bodily injuries for her broken heart. And the jury, of course, is entirely convinced of this, and they award her £350 damages, which is more than $200,000 in today's money. But you... You said they ended up marrying. Is is that right? Yeah. And that was quite common, weirdly. But if they hadn't married, then one of Australia's prime ministers in the 1990s would never have been born. What? Who? We're not talking about uh-huh. John Howard. Paul Keating. Wow. Yeah. Beatrice's story was Paul Keating's grandmother. So the weird thing is that he himself was also embroiled in a breach of promise action in 1973 with a woman called Christine. It runs in the family, Tamsin. They settled out of court, this is Paul and Christine, um, but it later became a huge scandal in Parliament, kind of similar to the Barnaby Joyce scandal, you know, that we've just recently seen. That sort of message that it sends is like, you know, if you can't govern your own private life, then what right do you have to govern the country? Amazing how these questions keep coming back. But there's another thing. You said that she'd claim bodily injuries. Mm, Yeah. So were you saying that you could get compensation for Mm. physical injuries of a broken heart? I know, right? So this is when something very strange started happening. Reading the case notes and the cases from around the 1910s and 20s, I see that women start coming to court being blind, for instance, or paralysed or incapacitated. One woman claimed that she couldn't move her arm anymore. Or from the nervous shock of a broken heart. Ms Vox became very ill with a serious breakdown and was confined to a room for about four months. In the hand. She complained of loss of appetite. A few days later, she lost the use of her left arm. A terrible shock to her. Her nerves and eyes were affected. She could not sleep and had to take to wearing glasses. An inability to concentrate. It seems obvious that the cause must be the fact that she had been jilted and the shame of her condition. The war plays a great role in popularising the sort of language of nervous illness and nervous disease. This is Stephen Garton historian of sexuality and medicine at Sydney University. Doctors are beginning to say, well, we've seen from the war that nervous illness is a serious problem. Everyone was talking the language of um, nervous illness, war neurosis, shell shock. That language was right out there. Wow. So women would use language like this to prove they've suffered from a broken promise. And that won them more money in damages? Look, a little bit more. I mean, usually the law awards the greater sum of damages for bodily injury. 
But in this case, the court records show that they're awarding the big bucks for emotional suffering. And in fact, the physical stuff was smaller. But it seems that it was more about having to prove in some ways that they'd actually suffered at all. In the 19th century, it was just assumed that a woman had suffered. But by the early 20th century, you see them starting to prove it in these very corporeal ways. Um, And I think that that's simply because they are just suffering a bit less. Why? Well, I guess because they could now work, the wages are increasing, and the welfare state is slowly starting to emerge. So hang on, they're suffering less, so they're claiming bodily injury. I think it's proof, you know, like they need proof now. And at the same time, there's, you know, a new push which sees women's main function as having children. And then you have Freud's ideas about repressed desires causing neurosis. So all of this results in any kind of deviation from motherhood being seen as slightly pathological, even dangerous. Suddenly the spinster and the bachelor uh, get problematised as psychosexual deviants who are not living a full life and therefore prone to all sorts of nervous um, illnesses because of their excessive repression. And it's why a lot of women um, and men start going off to psychotherapists because they're worried that they might um, be deviants because they haven't found their marriage partner or uh, it's not working out or their marriage is unhappy and it's not companionate. And it's the expectation of affection more than duty that you see sort of from the 1930s onwards and then in the post-war period, 1950s, the expansion of the welfare state starts to undermine the foundation of breach of promise. Up until then, I'd had a lot of cases, but by the 1950s, they really do start to dwindle. We don't need the law coming in. We're policing ourselves through languages like psychoanalysis and sexuality and sexual repression. And we take ourselves off for psychotherapy. As you move further into the 20th century, that sort of accelerates with the concept of sexual liberation. And so sexual liberation, you know, really changed our idea of love. Nowadays, it's like, well, you know, your partner has got to be your best friend, right? Right. Um, And and one of the things that you want from a love relationship is obviously intimacy. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, Otherwise, it's just sex. And I think that's one of the interesting things as well. Uh, Over the course of the 20th century, love has changed from having a spiritual meaning from the 19th century into um, it's become sexualized and then at the end of the 20th century it's been decoupled from sex. So by the 1970s, the government put an end to breach of promise along with the sweeping reforms of the Family Law Act and no-fault divorce. The same state that was once so insistent that everybody get married was now retreating from the bedroom. Clive Evatt, who we heard from earlier, was one of the last barristers to practice the law in its modern incarnation in the 1950s and 60s. And when they got rid of the law, it was surprisingly him that needed a few tissues. They abolished it and it broke my heart. I was building a huge practice. Oh, shit. Clive comes from a big labour family. He'd made it his business to defend the broken-hearted working class. He took the cases on spec, but he got paid when he won, and he usually won. And the juries awarded huge damages. Now I've had up to £25,000. Now I would pay for a two-storey house in Double Bay on the water. Shit, that was big money. That was the compensation his clients would get. This was a typical case. She was the maid of Dr So-and-so in Vaucluse, and he started to um, want to become intimate with her, and... He asked 
her to marry him and she said she would. But she needed corroboration. Mum's listening at the window or behind the sofa okay, or outside the door. Remember the love letters in Sarah's case? Well, that's not a big part of evidence anymore. Now it's the murky world of verbal evidence. But what stayed the same was that everyone had to play their part. She couldn't sleep at night. She doesn't go out so much as she used to, stays at home. Changed her appearance a bit, wears sunglasses and changed her hair colour and style. Felt embarrassed in going to places where she was known because people are talking about her fiancé calling the wedding off. Some people rang up to commiserate with her. She said all that. Financial loss. By the 1950s, men had stopped using the defence of a lack of chastity. It was much more common just to argue that the break was a mutual decision. The courts now fully recognised what a broken promise meant to a single mum because if there was a baby involved... Oh, yeah, the baby increases the damages right up. One particular case, we were there at court with the nurse and the baby and the doctor turned up, he took one look at it and fled. We never saw him since he told his sister to settle it. It's hard to fight if the woman's holding the baby. When I stopped the thing, it was a bit rough on the doctors what he did, but it was a scandal in those days. So everyone married, you've got to understand this, people didn't live together in the 1950s or 60s. That was unheard of. If you live with a woman, she was your wife. Today, no one gets married, but everyone got married in those days. It means something. Clive had a hiatus from the bar in the late 1960s, and when he returned in 1981, breach of promise had been abolished. I think if you brought a breach of promise case today, the jury would say, well, what the hell are you talking about? Why would he want to marry her? Why doesn't he just live with her? In a very practical sense they got rid of it because people had stopped suing on it. And that's ultimately because it's based upon this idea, as men have started to argue from the 20th century, that there's no point in a marriage if there's no love. I'd say most people would say that they get married because of love. And I'd say that whether people are really in love or not, the ideal is always to marry because of love. And that's not necessarily the case Even into the early 20th century, people get married for all kinds of different reasons. It's about, can he provide for me? In some ways, uh, you can uh, you can afford to uh, to marry for love and all of that when you're economically secure and um, and you're financially independent. But others who are not in that position have other considerations as well. Like I said, for whatever reasons people might have to get married, the socially sanctioned one is always, oh, we married for love. You've been listening to History Lab, an investigative history podcast by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS. I'm Tamsin Peach. Thanks to collaborating historian Alicia Simmons. I think the discussions like we've had are so lovely, you know, to have, because what they're about is, is ethics. We're talking about an ethics of intimacy. It's about how you should treat other people. And special thanks to the often invisible archivists, librarians and curators that helped us bring this history to life. Emily Hanna at State Records, Mel Flight at Sydney Living Museums and the teams at the New South Wales and Victorian State Libraries. If you want to find out more, head to historylab.net. 
and next time on History Lab. And she said, Mother, I'm in Broken Hill in Australia. I never, ever expected to find a Titanic memorial in the middle of this dry country. We find out how the Titanic sank in the Australian desert. This episode was produced by Tom Allenson. Our executive producer is Emma Lancaster. Miles Martignoni is our supervising producer. Sound design by Joe Koning, with additional assistance from Miles Martignoni. Marketing and communications by Andy Huang. And special thanks to our voice actors, Pixie Willow, Dave Chivers, Shay Courtney, Rod Chambers, Anthony Dockrell and Sean Britton. History Lab is made in the studios of 2SER that sit on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, who have been telling stories since time immemorial.